0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute for Government. Thank you very much for joining us for this event on procurement after Brexit, which has been kindly supported by Gowling WLG. Government procurement has long been an issue of interest to the Institute and we've published reports on government commercial skills when services should be outsourced or insourced and on the reforms government has made since the collapse of Carillion in 2018. This has also been a topic with a high public profile over the last few years, most recently with regards to decisions made during the pandemic. Throughout this period, the rules and regulations of procurement procedures, selecting suppliers, challenging decisions, transparency and more have been underpinned by EU procurement directives. Following Brexit, there's an opportunity to diverge from these. At that end, just before Christmas, the government published its green paper, Transforming Public Procurement, which sets out the government's vision for the future of public procurement in this country. So what are the opportunities and trade-offs of changing our procurement rules? What can we learn from other countries? And how can the changes proposed by the government be implemented effectively? To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Lord Agnew, Minister of State for the Cabinet Office, who will begin today's event with a keynote speech. This will be followed by short reflections for our panellists, Sally Gaia, Global CEO of World Commerce and Contracting, and Robert Breeden, partner at Gowling WLG. I will then ask the panellists a quick round of questions before opening up to the audience. If you have a question for any of our panellists, please submit them using the Q&A function. You can submit them while we're speaking, and I'll try to ask as many of them as possible. For this Q&A section will also be joined by Ed Green, Deputy Director for Commercial Policy International and Reform at the Cabinet Office, who will be able to field any particularly technical questions. Finally, I'd like to encourage you all to tweet using hashtag IFG outsourcing. Right, without further ado, I'll hand over to Lord Agnew. <laughs>
2: Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you, Nick, for inviting me to join you this afternoon. I'm pleased that so many people have joined us to discuss this topic of public procurement after EU exit, and I look forward to the panel discussion. UK public procurement is going through a number of real changes, all informed by ongoing discussions and consultation with the key stakeholders. This includes the overhaul of our public procurement regulations, which govern how we spend some £290 billion of taxpayers' money. Leaving the EU has provided the UK with a golden opportunity to redesign the procurement rules in the interests of the UK, whilst respecting our international commitments. Rules that are currently too complex and have made it harder for innovative companies to be fleet of foot, to win business and ultimately to deliver better public goods and services. Rules that have been too rigid for government departments and public bodies to get tough with suppliers that have performed poorly. Rules that have not always helped to deliver what the public needs and are paying for. The government has set out a blueprint for new procurement rules that will truly deliver for our businesses and communities. And on the 15th of December, as Nick said, we published our proposals for a comprehensive package of reform in this area. I titled the consultation Transforming Public Procurement because this programme really is nothing short of a transformation. The new regulatory framework will enable buyers and contract managers right across public sector in central and local government, defence, education, health and beyond to take advantage of the freedoms we now have available to us. It's been designed to balance the best commercial outcomes with the least burden on our businesses and the public sector. I'd like to set out the highlights of the package on which we have consulted. Overall, the proposals aim to create a simpler, more flexible regime. It reduces the costs for business and the public sector while complying with our international obligations. We want to shrink the sheer amount of legislation that we were bound by as members of the EU, replacing four different sets, which comprise more than 350 individual regulations for the public sector utilities concession contracts and defense into one set of regulations we will use this single set of regulations to make bidding for public sector contracts far simpler measures to usher in greater simplicity include scrapping seven complex procurement procedures procedures we had to follow under the eu derived legislation replacing them with a simpler three-stage set of procedures one of which is a new competitive flexible method that gives buyers maximum freedom to negotiate and innovate to get the best from the private charity and social enterprise sectors. We will harness technology and establish a single digital platform for supplier registration. Under our proposals, suppliers will only have to submit their data once to qualify for any public sector procurement, something that seems so obvious and simple. These measures will help us open up procurement to a more diverse supply base. But we want to go further still. We want to make it easier for new entrants, small businesses and voluntary charitable and social enterprises to win public contracts. New legislation will send a clear message to to public sector commercial teams that they can and indeed should take a much broader view of value for money. It's not always just the lowest price. It should include, include social value as well. New award criteria for evaluating the quality of final bids will encourage ways of working to deliver our social value objectives. A new provision that is part of our fresh concept of most advantageous tender, an important distinction from the most economically advantageous tender under the current rules. So from meat to mat. As you know, transparency is a core principle of public procurement. As part of our commitment to opening up public procurement, we want to embed it deeper. To ensure proper scrutiny of contract awards and minimise the risk of corruption, we will legislate to introduce a common data model for all contracting authorities. More procurement data will be published and it will be done in a standard machine-readable format that is accessible to all. In parallel, we will be legislating to require procurement pipelines to be published. This will ensure that opportunities to work on public sector contracts are widely visible to all suppliers. It will encourage businesses who may not have previously delivered government to government to get involved. The Cabinet, offices, cabinet Office sourcing playbooks will support our ambition to open up public procurement and to help contracting authorities best use, best, make best use of these new freedoms. The sourcing playbooks will provide guidance for contracting authorities on how to assess, procure, and manage public sector contracts in a way which maximizes value for money, improves service quality for citizens, and supports wider economic growth. We're opening up public procurement because we're also raising the bar, but we're also raising the bar on the standards we expect of all suppliers in the public sector. Current procurement regulations derived from the EU only allow buyers to consider the past performance of a supplier on very limited grounds. Our commercial teams often have to rely on bidder's self-declarations rather than objective evidence-based information. As we seek to redesign the rules in the interests of the UK, we're acting now to, to pr- introduce fresh measures. We propose using exclusion rules to tackle unacceptable behaviour in public procurement and exploring the introduction of a centrally managed debarment list. We propose giving buyers the tools to properly take account of a bidder's past performance and to exclude them if they clearly do not have the capability to deliver. We will take the opportunity to reform the remedy system through making the court review process faster and less, comp- less costly and capping damages. Meanwhile, we plan to continue our focus on raising capability standards for buyers, supporting our people working in this area with rigorous assessment against our people's standards, structured learning and continued professional development for all. Contracts must be well managed across their life, so I'd like to reaffirm our commitments to raising the standards of contract management cross government by training and accrediting civil servants who manage contracts over the next two years. I'm delighted that world commerce and contracting is a part of this journey. Our new legislation will ensure we remain committed to the World Trade Organization Agreement on Government Procurement, which the UK joined as an independent member on the 1st of January of this year. WTO GPA membership is important to British businesses as it opens up the public sector expenditure more than 48 countries to UK bidders. The GPA has £1.3 trillion worth of procurement opportunities that British businesses will be able to access. This includes opportunities in some of our the world's major economies such as the US, Canada, Japan, Australia and indeed the EU. It's vital that we get the rules, rules reform right when developing our proposals we studied procurement law and procedures In a number of major international economies to help us benchmark our UK reforms. My constant challenge to the teams was show me the best in the world and then show how we can do better than that. Research confirmed that all of the countries in our study have a system of procurement that ensure open competitive markets. However, there were some striking differences. The US and South Korea procurement models are heavily regulated. The U.S., for example, has around 2,000 pages of law, whereas New Zealand has no regulations at all, choosing a much lighter approach of imposing the rules through 84 pages of policy and guidance. Our findings from international comparators proved useful, and my team in the Cabinet Office embarked on a full programme of domestic research. They've engaged with over 500 stakeholders and organisations through hundreds of hours of discussions and workshops, I've chaired an expert procurement transformation advisory panel made up of business leaders, academics, civil society, and experts in international best practice. All of their contributions were valuable. We have then run a 12-week consultation on the proposals which closed yesterday. We've had over 600 responses. I'd like to take this opportunity to, to thank all of those who've taken the time and trouble and effort to respond, and we will learn from your contributions. Your responses will be carefully considered as we continue to shape and hone the legislation currently being prepared our new rules will be radical and have the power to be transformative but we are conscious that new rules however elegant and well considered will not in themselves deliver change unless commercial teams across the public sector understand how to deploy them effectively that's why we will be investing in a full program of guidance and training for contracting authorities We expect that this will involve a combination of online learning, detailed webinars, and network communities of practice, so that that everyone who operates in the new regulatory environment has the opportunity to develop the necessary knowledge, skills, behaviors, and indeed confidence that they need. In addition, we plan to publish a national procurement policy statement, which will require contracting authorities to take into account national strategic priorities aimed at driving economic growth and recovery from COVID, levelling up and tackling climate change. This will be an opportunity to focus attention on driving capability in commercial and ensuring complex procurements for public services are delivered effectively. As I speak to you through a computer screen in these difficult times, I'd like to end though on a note of optimism. Our transition period from the EU ended on the 31st of December, But here we are only 10 weeks later presenting you with a potential blueprint for the wholesale rules reform that is well considered and thoroughly consulted upon. Our new rules will shake up past policy, give the UK a stronger, simpler basis for faster, fairer and more effective public procurement. Thank you.
1: Lord Agnew, thank you very much. I'm now going to hand over to Sally. Sally, over to you.
0: Thank you, Nick. Lord Agnew rightly states, this is a golden uh, and historic opportunity to address what is currently broken. Done well, implemented as a package, these reforms will save government and the taxpayer billions. Critical features of the Green Paper include recognition of the need for greater transparency, the widespread use of the open contracting data standard, the inclusion of small and medium enterprise and fostering innovation, I also welcome the commitment to streamline and simplify current regulations. The paper is good and it can be made even better. Digitization is a priority for business and government globally. The new policy must expand on the current references to digital technology and demonstrate a true ambition for digitization. Without this, the aspiration for open and transparent data flows, for high performing relationships, and for the delivery of value and social benefit will be frustrated. In my joint roles as CEO of World Commerce and Contracting and chair of the board of the Open Contracting Partnership, I see evidence from around the world of what works and what doesn't. There are fantastic case studies where open data has helped countries truly perform, particularly during the pandemic. This reinforces the need for the government to implement OCDS and again emphasizes the need for an effective digitization strategy. The UK's ambitions will be met through a spirit of shared goals and objectives. The new principles provide an opportunity for increased cooperation and collaboration between contracting agencies and the market. However, this depends on conscious efforts to build trust confidence, and a sense of fairness, achievable only through increased openness and transparency. To this end, government might consider the development and use of a commercial charter or a code, setting out the behavioural principles that both government and its suppliers are expected to follow. A broader focus on simplification is needed to foster the SME community and innovation. Simplification not just of process, but of documentation. Government needs to adopt a policy of user-based design, designing contract documentation for its users. Finally, the new National Procurement Policy Statement must establish an holistic acquisition and delivery process. In 2014, NAO criticised UK government for treating contract management as an administrative activity. Contract management is about more than amendment notices and payment structures and I welcome Lord Agnew's comments on the focus on capability in contract management. The the policy must recognise that achieving value for money depends on the quality of post-award contract and relationship management. This is where value is won and lost and where trust is built or eroded. Procurement is one component of the commercial lifecycle and needs to be accountable for successful outcomes. The eventual policy must equally commit to developing commercial as a capability that runs across the many professions that contribute to the commercial lifecycle. And Lord Agnew, we remain committed to supporting that outcome. Thank you, Nick.
1: Ali, thank you very much indeed. I'm now going to hand over to Robert
3: thank you nick um also thank you to lord agnew and to sally and uh, firstly on behalf, on behalf of gaeorgie can i just say how delighted we are to be supporting uh we welcome the de- debate and the conversation in relation to public procurement law procurement law we think it's critically important uh, we think that we think the timing of uh, the the green paper is uh, is um, is very welcome. We have we've we've contributed to that. We put our own thoughts and proposals in earlier this week in response to the questions that are raised in the the green paper. And I thought I'd just pick out a couple of the the key themes um, as lawyers working in the public in the public procurement arena. Uh, uh, initial thoughts really on the on the matters raised in the paper. <clears throat> so we we greatly welcome the simplification of the regulatory regime um, and the introduction of the. Uh, reduced number of procedures. So, we're going to, uh, if the proposals come through, we're going to see an open procedure, much as we're familiar with, um, a, a new named limited tendering procedure essentially for types of direct award award and learning i'm sure from the experience of the experience of the last months and the the need as we've come as we've come through the pandemic uh, to be able to move um, more swiftly in urgent circumstances and in particular we 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 welcome the proposed competitive flexible procedure there's a lot to be said for uh, a simplified simplified um we, we like the idea that it builds upon the current light touch regime so that you have, uh, rather than a rather bureaucratic, bureaucratic process, uh, you have greater flexibility, but still underpinned by the key principles of making sure that everybody is treated fairly, that you act transparently and there's no discrimination involved in the processes followed. So we, we um, strongly welcome the simplified regulatory regime and the procedures. We also welcome the ability to take into account the criteria, so to give contracting authorities the ability to look more broadly, to look at the wider economic impacts and the impact on broader society. So that broadening of the, uh, the uh, as Lord Agnew described, a move away away to Matt and to be able to take uh, Aspects into account, not simply from the view of the contracting authority. Of course, matters will need to be relevant to the contract and proportionate, but a, a greater degree of flexibility is, is greatly welcomed. We also, we also, uh, we welcome the introduction of, uh, or the proposals around much greater transparency and the push towards what I might call more front-end loaded remedies. So remedies during the process and before the contract is awarded, we we think is a very positive proposal. If we have reservations, uh, it'll be about the legal profession, I'm afraid, and and whether by bringing forward uh, advanced disclosure of the material and the reasons and reasons and the rationales, we hope what we don't see is see is sort of industry being built around challenges challenges at this stage, um, sort of sort of bringing in time. The, the challenge that we currently see at the contract award stage so there's something for the legal profession i think to be to be aware of there and and a, and a slight concern i suppose that will we see contracting authorities at that at that point of full transparency just before contract award um taking a little bit more time a bit more thought to get their house in order and 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 we're starting to see some um, instructions coming our way around um, make sure that all of this um, stacks up that it's consistent it's compliant and i wonder whether that we might see that ramp up and again that would be a shame um, to put more money into lawyers coffers uh, at that stage but the, the principle behind it i i uh, we're very supportive of um, and finally um, we welcome the pro- Proposals around expedited process to deal with challenges. Um, the proposal around a tribunal. The proposal that we might deal with some matters on the papers rather than through and through uh, court hearings. We think all of that uh, uh, is possible. Um we're, we're up for a discussion and a, a debate. A debate upon damages and the uh, the damages being uh, awarded by reference to bid costs as opposed to. Um, the actual loss that a bidder might have suffered, um, uh, that I think for lawyers is a bit of a, a mind shift. It's not something that we're, we're trained in. We tend to think of damages being uh, to be compensatory. Um, and so we've just got a little bit of a question mark in our minds about how that might work in practice. But we welcome the opportunity to have the discussion and the debate. Um, um, and we look forward to seeing what comes out of the consultation.
1: Robert, thank you very much. Um, I'm now just going to ask the uh, panellists a question each before moving to some of the great questions that have already been uh, submitted by those watching. Uh, If you are watching now, please do continue to submit uh, those questions. Um, Lord Agnew, I'm going to come to you first. Um, You made the point at the beginning of your remarks that existing rules are too rigid. Um, It's also true that many public bodies don't make use of the substantial flexibilities afforded by the current regime. And there have been existing training programmes and guidance to overcome these uh, cultural barriers to better practice, but problems continue. So could you say a bit more about how the new training and guidance um, that you said will be rolled out will help ensure that public bodies are taking advantage of all the additional flexibilities um, that the government hopes to introduce?
2: Well, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, we're certainly going to put a lot of emphasis around the training and familiarization across the whole public sector. Uh, and I think, you know, the three key words to this whole whole uh, exercise are transparency, competition and objective criteria. And we will keep banging the drum. And one of the things we we are going to be pushing for is greater transparency of forward look uh, procurement lists across the sector so i think that the the combination of those will will make a big difference it's not going to happen overnight i completely accept that but i think when when we start to produce case studies of the success stories that i think people will will, will see will see the light i mean for example just from the 1st of January of this year, we already have now the social value emphasis in contracts and we are we're putting much more uh, emphasis on that and the ones that I see through my role as the spend control minister on large contracts, I've already sent several back and said no, you haven't put enough in on social value here, P- please try harder and that message will soon get through into the system. So I, I'm broadly optimistic but I, I'm not one, the sort of person who wants to, to over-promise and under-deliver. This will be a very profound change.
1: Thank you. Um, Sally, I'm going to come to you next. Um, There's been progress on contract transparency in the UK in recent years, but it's often been um, quite slow. What are the the key things that global leaders in contract transparency have done differently uh, to quickly improve the transparency in those countries? And what can the government learn from those examples when implementing these new proposals?
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's a a great question. Um, And uh, I know my colleague from OCP, Gavin Heyman, will be particularly delighted that you've asked me that, Nick. Um, Listen, we've seen a... A lot of progress made in, uh, you know, all sorts of different corners of the world. What very often it's a combination of civil society, government or international organizations coming together. Um, there's always been a, a force behind the transparency agenda and opening up using platforms, using digitization, as I said before, to to support sharing data across those um, different silos that, that often exist within um, governments around the world. So, um, you know, there, there are, from from Nigeria to the Ukraine, to Lithuania, Chile, there are so many fabulous examples and, you know, particularly during the pandemic of how open data has supported um, competition, a sense of fairness and, and reduce cost for government as well.
1: Thank you. Um, Robert. I'm going to come to you next. Um, Do you have any views on the proposal that the new main procedure for procurement, the um, competitive flexible procedure, will draw upon features of the current light touch regime? Uh,
3: Yes, I think it's a very sensible, sensible, um, um, my, my own practices uh I, I do a lot in the health and care sector which is covered by the current light touch regime uh, and i think the flexibilities that it offers are 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 uh, probably still underutilized even in the uh the the areas that are cut to the light touch regime but those who are uh who aren't familiar with it i i i would summarize that as uh simply advertise the opportunity set out what you're going to do follow a fair Transparent procedure, um, and make sure that any timelines are reasonable. and And as long as you work within those very sensible parameters, you you've got much greater ability. And I think some of the critics of public of public law often point to what is cause, cause sometimes a bureaucratic. You know, you've got to do something. Uh, you know, you've got to wait thirty days for this, and so many days for something else. You're, you're, um, and, um, and and giving the authorities the ability to design design the right process that matches their requirements, I think, is is welcome. It's it's there currently under the light touch regime. I think it could be uh, even, used even more so than it has been. Uh, so I welcome all of that. Um, I know that there are some concerns that by by introducing that into mainstream procedure and and move and taking away the light touch regime and the current schedule three services might might be bringing into the scope of procurement a greater number of services so those services are currently caught by light touch regime have a higher threshold um my reading at the moment is uh, i don't know whether that will stay or whether we're going to bring the threshold down and therefore we would capture some services for example in health and care or education that are currently outside the regime but but i welcome the flexibility
1: Thanks, Robert. Um, I'm going to move to the um, audience questions now, and I'm going to um, direct the first one to Lord Agnew continuing on the, the theme of what you were just talking about, Robert. So this is from um, Caroline at the Lloyds Bank Foundation for England and Wales, and, and she's written, uh, public services delivered for people are vastly different to other works and services, uh, from holistic support for survivors of domestic abuse and locality to purchasing a million pound IT system for use across government. Um, but she said the, the proposal set out the same approach for both. So how can purpose be placed at the heart of commissioning and procurement in the new approach so that that procurement is proportionate to the service that needs to be delivered. Lord Agnew, I'll come to you on that.
2: Well, I think Caroline raises an incredibly important point, which is that all of this stuff that we procure are for ultimately the benefit of of citizens. And too much in the way government is run is is done from the wrong end of the telescope. It's policy people doing things or coming up with ideas to, to, to do to people. And I'm trying to change that culture. And one of the ways we're doing that is making sure that procurement and commercial people are in the room when policy decisions are being made. But I think it might be a good opportunity to bring Ed Green in, who has, has literally uh, built the the engine here that we, we are hoping to mobilise. So, Ed, would you like just to come in and put a little bit more meat on the bones for Caroline?
4: Yeah, of course. Thank you, Lord Agnew, and thank you, Caroline, uh, for the question. Uh, I think obviously there are various different sorts of, of service provision uh, in, in that space. Some of it might be provided directly, some of it might be grant funded, uh, some of it might be uh, contracted out, where it, where it falls under the definition. And, and some of the changes we're proposing are, d- are designed to enable some of those public service elements to be better considered. So, so Lord Agnew talked about the value for money approach. So instead of just looking at value for money from the perspective of the contracting authority, looking at it, in fact, how the Green Book, the Treasury guidance suggests you should look at it, you know, in in terms of value to to, to the UK as a whole. So so you could particularly see that being relevant in the commissioning space where you know, you have rehabilitation, mental health, welfare services, and sometimes service provision changes there when only considered from one body's perspective can have quite an impact uh, on other areas affected. Now, you can get through that with with co-commissioning under the current regs but wouldn't it be a lot simpler if you could just had a broader VFM definition that allowed the, the, the public body doing the buying to consider uh, those sorts of things? And I think the increased focus on social value here as well, both under the current rules and the reformed ones, will help make sure that where contracting is used to provide those sorts of services, then the contracting processes uh, let will will you know be, be, be much more attuned to delivering those services rather than, as you say, to the very different contracting
1: approach you might have for a complicated uh, IT system. Thank you. Um, I'm going to move on to the next uh, question, and uh, Lord Agnew, I'm going to direct this Want to you first. So this is from um, Simon Lyddiard, um, who has asked, uh, said, government often seems to buy professional services uh, and consultancy from very large multinationals. Uh, this is often because those firms walk the floors of Whitehall, uh, building contacts. Uh, how will you move towards a levelling of the playing field to enable high quality, nimble SMEs to compete for more government business? And I think Particularly relevant, as I I know some of your um, comments and concerns about the overuse of consultants were reported in the press.
2: Well, Simon, this is one of my hot buttons. I have to admit the, the amount spent on consultancy in the year before COVID was somewhere in the order of one and a half billion, which is for me just far too much and uh, the, the, how that is, is spent and bulk the bulk going to the biggest firms you're probably right and that's not uh, acceptable but my first aim is to try to understand why so much consultancy is being bought and I think that it's become a lazy habit in government that any, solu- any problem is easier solved just by throwing a bunch of consultants at it and I think that's very dangerous for the civil service because it essentially infantilizes the civil servants from tackling some of the most interesting thorny problems in public service. So we are what I'm doing initially in the Cabinet Office, we are setting up a small internal consultancy service that will provide services in in conjunction with external consultants. And the reason I want to do that is I want to find out where the skills gaps are across the civil service. So I want to ensure that before an external consultant is engaged, we understand why they are being engaged. You know, why have we not got the brain power internally to do it? And the, 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 the reality is very often we do have. It just takes a bit more management a bit more thought and indeed we will need to create this mobile pool uh, where we, we we can deploy them as they're needed so we're, we're on the beginning of a very big and important journey and whilst i started it because i was worried about the amount we spent I think we will massively improve the civil service over the next few years because for for example the fast streamers who, who we bring into the civil service are very similar to the people who get recruited by the big firms and the problem is in the civil service what we haven't done is train them and deploy them in the same way that the consultants do with their own people so we're going to we're going to start to to make a real a, 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 a real attack on that but to your question about the big ones versus the little ones, what I want to see us do is, is you, when we use professional services, we need to go where we need narrow, deep expertise. So there will be some things in civil service that we cannot expect to have that expertise on, on the rack where we will need to go out to to small pools of deep expertise. So we will be using smaller firms. There's no doubt of that. And I hope that this whole procurement reform will make sure that you get a more uh, fairer access to the system. Sally wants to say something.
1: Yes, Sally, I was I was actually going to come to you next. I was I was going to ask um, to to what extent is the is the UK an an outlier in terms of its kind of uh, extensive use of uh, professional service firms. But uh, do please add any other thoughts you had.
0: Yeah, I'm. I, I'm not sure it is. <laughs> to be fair, um, although as Lord Agnew rightly points out, it is excessive. Um, And Lord Agnew's statement just then is music to my ears. I don't have too much more to add to it except um, to to reinforce the point that we need to ensure that we're making government accessible to small to medium enterprise organisations. So um, the the nature of the process, that that bidding um, procurement process, and um, as I said before, the nature of the documentation Um, This this approach to risk, et cetera, uh, all need to be addressed in the context of really embracing small to medium enterprise and absolutely benefiting from their niche expertise because it's underutilized at the moment.
1: Thank you. And uh, Ed, I think you also wanted to come in.
4: Thanks Nick. Um, just a couple of the reforms that will help, uh, I hope uh, increase the number of uh, small businesses uh, in, in, in not just consultancy but in other sectors. Um, so finally uh, requiring the publication of pipelines uh, uh, legally. Uh, Simon will be aware from his days at the Department for Transport. that We've had various goes at this but putting pipelines on legislative footing so people can see what's coming up. Uh, Lord Agnew mentioned a single supply registration system. I think in central government at the minute there are 70 different systems you might have to register with so having to register once only will hopefully help SMEs. Opening up frameworks during the course of their life so that new suppliers can come on small business often complain that frameworks let them out uh, lock them out and dynamic purchasing systems so effectively open commercial arrangements that people can join at any time we want to increase the use of those so all of those um, we we believe will help it uh, remove the barriers that are Preventing uh, small businesses accessing contracts at the minute.
1: Thank you, Um, Lord Owen. A question here from uh, anonymous, who's asked, um, "What will Cabinet Office be doing to bring procurement practice uh, in line uh, with the net zero target?" Uh, And they've um, questioned whether the kind of the ongoing procurement reforms, including the green paper and the national policy statement, will be enough to decarbonise public procurement.
2: Uh, well, we, we, we already with the social value that uh, rules have just come in, uh, put the net zero under that as a category. So we're already starting to crank up the pressure on that. And I think we will see a lot more. I mean, the prime minister has a very, very strong Sense of how important building our economy around a net zero outcome is. So, it, it's not a it's not a slogan. I mean, there is an enormous commitment to to that. I'm the also the government property minister. We have a budget this year to to make another uh, to make an ongoing effort to improve or decarbonize our buildings through better insulation, through LED lighting, through some innovations such as heat pumps, which are still very expensive, but maybe it's government's role to to spend early in those to bring down the cost for others so there really is an enormous commitment to do it and I think it is worth remembering that as a country we are one of the most effective reducers of carbon production in the G20 so uh, this isn't a flash in the pan this is something we've been working on for quite some time and the procurement rules will help there's no doubt of that.
1: Uh, Thank you. I might just ask a a quick uh, follow up question on um, social value, which I think might be the most popular topic um, for those uh, submitting questions. Um, So this one from uh, Matt Dykes at TUC, who's asked. What more will contracting authorities be able to do uh, in procuring social value under the new proposals uh, compared to the existing regulations derived from the EU EU directive? For example, are we now more able to incorporate social value criteria that promotes the uh, employment standards of the outsourced workforce, including pay, safety, training and trade union access?
2: I'll have to let Ed come in on the detail, but I certainly think that there will be more emphasis around things like employing apprentices, ensuring that contracts uh, have those as part of that contract, uh, working in areas of, of, of lower affluence, hiring in those areas. But, but I might just let Ed come in with a, with a bit more detail. Thanks, Lord Agnew. Absolutely. And some of the changes I touched upon
4: earlier will help with this. So so that broadening of value for money uh, so that wider factors can be taken into account by the contracting authority um, will assist with this um, in particular. And also in certain circumstances, um, Rob mentioned the link to the subject matter of the contract. We are retaining that. But we're also proposing that in certain circumstances, government can break that link or effectively say that anything in this particular area is relevant to the subject matter of the contract. So, so going back to net zero, um, uh, you, you know, you could conceive of a situation where that happens, where you don't necessarily have to prove the the link to the subject matter of the contract to ask about a supplier's activity on net zero. So, so, so the, those VFM changes um, uh, are the ones that will very much uh, mean that local authorities and others are better able to to take account of those sorts of social value initiatives
1: thank you robert i think you wanted to come in there as well yes uh,
3: <clears throat> the issue of social value of course has been it's it, it, it's always well, it has been there certainly since the, uh, the, the the current regs back in 2000 back in 2015 underutilized so the regulations do allow you to put in place criteria around social um and, economic and other um factors it's just been under underutilized i think and there was a consultation paper a paper a couple of years ago looking at the greater use of social value in procurement criteria and that's led now to this current position current position where really as a minimum of 10 percent of weight of weighting social value there are some um contracting authorities that we deal with are pushing that up 20-25 percent on social value of course it's, a, it's an interesting balance isn't that you can you, you could push as somebody once said to me if you push social value to value too far you'll end up solving problems but you may not have a service or a product that's any any good but so but it is important to um to get that balance right and i think it's it's a question of greater emphasis under the the proposals it's 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 there at the moment but it's just not been Uh, grabbed hold of and used as extensively as it might have been.
1: Lord Agnew, we have a question here from the director of lawyers in local government, which is a membership body representing four and a half thousand local government lawyers. Uh, And they say that their uh, members, the local authorities uh, and the local authorities they advise are concerned at the national central government focus of the Green Paper and ask uh, in the future, will local government continue to be able to set their own localised procurement policies reflecting local priorities?
2: Well, the, pr- the proposals here, and again, Ed can correct me if I'm wrong, are that, that, that in the local in local government arena, we will only be pushing for initial participation on on large on large spend on air, on, on on authorities that have a very large area of spend over 100 million pounds a year. So that still leaves a lot of spend where innov- innovation can be sought in a different way. Uh, but I don't think uh, I mean I hope that the this organization have responded in the consultation and, and maybe set out why they feel that the legislation would in any way restrict their room for maneuver under the under new legislation. I mean I would be genuinely interested to to hear what what impediments that they think are being put forward here to reduce their Uh, their you know their their flexibility in the future but I mean it was in my opening remarks I I did say we spent a lot of time talking to key stakeholders academics and all sorts of different people to try and tease out any of these sort of issues so uh, but I, I hope that if they'd like to write to me and explain why they think this will be disadvantageous I'd be interested to hear
1: it. Ed I think you also wanted to come in.
2: Yeah, thanks, Lord Agnew. Um,
4: and 100 million pounds is right in terms of some of the harder edged obligations that we've been talking to local government about separately as part of the national procurement policy statement. Uh, they they will they will apply. I, I think here um, that the, it will be it will be the standard procurement uh, uh, spend, the above threshold spend. It shall be caught so that the 189,000 in local government goods and services, 4.7 million for works contracts. What What the have regard duty in terms of the National Procurement Policy Statement will mean for those uh, bodies and that level of spend is that Central government would like local government to have regard to those priorities, but that is absolutely not preventing uh, local government from taking forward uh, its local priorities too, where it deems that relevant. And often, obviously, given the sorts of given the sorts of um, priorities indicated, uh, those those two things will be the same, albeit that local government will have a, a local slant on how those priorities should be delivered.
1: Thank you. Um, Lord you another question for you. Um, someone has asked whether there are plans to improve the uh, find attenders system, uh, which has replaced uh, TED, because uh, uh, they've said it's uh, quite clunky and difficult to search in at the moment. So are there any plans to improve that interface?
2: Well, I certainly have a standing instruction with uh, all of the officials I deal with that we must continually and iteratively improve. So again, if that uh, if that caller would like to write in and explain his or her frustration then i can assure you that as one of the ministers overseeing the government digital service i will call for uh, them to make an account of themselves i mean i this this is hugely important and it goes back to the point that sally made at the beginning about the whole digital mission and i was i was going to i'm glad to have this opportunity to come back partly to Sally on this, that uh, in in the last three weeks, we have created a new digital management structure across the whole of government, so that we have we not only have a new head of GDS, but we have a new head of a new thing called the Central Data and Digital Service, which is trying to link the whole of government up. And then we have a, a non-exec board of of some of the. Well, the chair is an exceptionally high-calibre person in 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 digital, uh, because we've got we, we've got to replumb government. I mean, there's no doubt of that. We are we are we are we are probably five years behind top corporations, and we've got to make up that lost time and it will all feed into find a tender is a classic example I'm trying to do exactly the same with all of the I'm the border's readiness minister at the moment with HMRC and continually challenging them to simplify guidance make it iterative follow follow draw people through a process electronically with the solution at the end so this is a massive massive subject so but do write to me and tell me why you think find a tender is a bit of a clunky thing. Sally, did you want to come in?
0: Yeah, no, um I, that it it's it's good to hear and you know it is incredibly important to not just simply think about digital technology because the 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 fear there is potentially that that it's just again a focus on numerous different systems that don't talk to each other across the different departments in government, which is which would be fatal. Um we need to ensure that we have a, a, a government-wide digitization or digitalization strategy um, that really supports those data flows to uh, and supports the implementation across government of the Open Contracting Data Standard um, and actually in response to um, the question around local government, I think there there is a lot um, of positive to be taken from the direction that this green paper is going in the context of simplification, um, certainly simplification of process, as I've said, hopefully simpl- simplification of documentation too um and uh, and a, a real focus on openness and transparency to drive competition and um, drive small to medium enterprise and innovation as well so this is all really really positive news and and very very important for government going forward
4: and ed did you want to come in as well just very quickly, absolutely endorse everything uh, Lord Agnew and, and Sally have said about the need for um, continuous improvement. All, all I would say about find a tender specifically is that it is the solution we had to bring in on the 1st of January uh, in order to make sure that contract opportunities could still be advertised. We couldn't make policy changes at that stage, you know, by changing the forms, for instance. So essentially, in order to work find a tender had to mirror the EU system so that might explain explain some of its clunkiness that obviously as we move forward and evolve this digital picture now that we can make policy changes and not just sort of make sure the show stayed on the road on the 1st of January you'll you know hopefully that the digital picture across the board will start to look start to look better.
1: Dali, I think, was, was there a further comment from
0: you? Just, yeah, very, very briefly. And again, picking up on what Lord Agnew said about looking all around the world at what's happening in, in other parts um, of, the, of the globe, um, one I would particularly pick up on is South Korea um, and the focus they have. Um, they're what they call CONEPs, um, e procurement, where um, Actually, I think um, over 70% of um, South Korea's procurement is handled on that e-procurement platform. But the big um, differentiation, and certainly um, OECDS and the UN have raised awareness of the um, positivity around the Conex platform because of the number of different other systems that it connects to, over 200. So whereas in other governments you might have Um, e-procurement platforms that are connected to business registry or tax registers um, or an ERP system, Um, there is a demonstrable benefit from ensuring that your platform connects to all the multiple different systems that are available. So I think um, again, just as an overall point, important for us to look globally, look east as well as west when we're looking at best practice examples around the world.
2: Thank you. Um, just yeah on that sally you're you 're right, and again it 's slightly a slight detour, but it just to re- to reassure you with our attempts to join up government uh, on digital and data better, we created a task force in June of last year to provide the central version of the truth on data protection because one of the main blockages of departments sharing data has been their own interpretations of data protection. And so we've now got one version of the truth. Then, And if someone, one department wants to share data with another and one says, oh, you can't because of data protection, they have to go to this central place and they get the, the real story. And we've just had our first seven or eight case studies where they've been able to link data by by killing off just myths around it so you're right and, and the other thing we have built and we are improving on is an api library held at the center to ensure that systems are able to talk to each other so i mean this goes beyond procurement but you're right if we're ever to link procurement into the rest of the plumbing we need to be winning these battles as well so i i 100 agree with you
1: Uh, Lord Agnew, I have a question for you here from uh, Gavin Hamer from the Open Contracting Partnership. who says, uh, congratulations, it's an impressive set of reforms uh, and could definitely be transformational. Are there any concerns or challenges keeping you awake as you seek to roll out these reforms that you can share? And what do you think the quicker wins are uh, like a single source of supply registration?
2: Well, the main thing that's keeping me awake is getting the damn thing through Parliament quickly. (laughs) So, you know, that's, that's what I'm focused on because it's, it, it's immensely complicated. and You will be aware there's a huge competition for legislative time at the moment. It's been made more difficult with COVID and so on. So I just want to get the thing out there working. I, I think that it, it, will, it will deliver and pretty quickly and then, you know, the learning curve will, will, will follow pretty soon after. But that's my priority. Get it out there fast.
1: Thank you. And on that, we've had a a few questions on the the timeline ahead. Uh, So the the consultation closed yesterday. Uh, What is the likely timeline for the government's response? And when roughly do you think we might see the new legislation regulations introduced? And when do you hope that they'll take effect? Well,
2: I'm on a very steep learning curve. I've never put legislation through government before, so I, I, as, as of a week ago, I wouldn't even know what I'm about to tell you. But basically, there is a there's a core policy team, where, where Ed is really the, the the sort of linchpin of that team. He's done a lot of work. We're just we now will quickly analyse those 600 responses that we've had in the consultation and pull out the stuff there that we think will improve what has already been. Put in on on the framework and then basically Ed and his team send the legislative parcels to COLA which is the cabinet office legal team they then turn it into legalese they then send it to the parliamentary council team who turn it into legislative ease there are 85 building blocks to get to the whole bill we've got to get those 85 building blocks into the parliamentary council uh, over the next three or four months, with the with the plan and the hope that we are ready to fire right at the beginning of the September session, when they all come back from from their parliamentary holidays, and then we get it through, hopefully by Christmas, give or take, and then it gets royal assent uh, early in the in in 2022. Ed will correct me if I've got any of that wrong, because as I say, I'm only a week into learning about it. Yeah, I mean, thanks, all Daniel. I, I think we're very much
4: in the hands of the wider legislative programme about when we bring this forward. So it'll it'll be when parliamentary time allows. Um, although clearly we we want, uh, and we're working very hard to make sure that we can give effect uh, to the new regime just as soon as we get that slot. And um, you know, we can we can reap the benefits as quickly as possible. There, there will be some uh, implementing secondary legislation on some of the more technical detail. Though clearly, we want. You know, it'll it'll be it'll be a chunky bill when it comes through so, so the bill will receive royal assent uh, there'll, be some, there'll be some secondary legislation to follow and obviously as as key to, um, to the legislation as Lord Agnew has pointed on out before and as Sally has touched on in parallel we will be taking forward uh, that capability building and that digital infrastructure uh, work as well so that uh, whilst not everything will arrive on day one you know once the legislation does come in uh, that that which is infrastructure development and that capability building,
1: you know, is, is well, well underway. Well, I think having listened to that, that even I might lose some sleep tonight uh, worrying about whether it'll um, get through or not. Um, I think we've probably got time for one or two additional questions. Um, Lord, a question here from um, Robert Moreland, who's asked, um, will business still be able to apply for EU public procurement contracts? Uh, and will our rules be consistent with EU, EU rules, e.g. will I still be able to see stoke-on-trent crockery in some EU institutions?
2: Well, the shorter answer is yes by by acceding to the World Trade Organization in our own, uh, in our own state, we, we get access to the trading blocks, including the eu and Although it might sound slightly nerdy, the, the trade agreement that the EU have, have agreed with us is the largest single trade agreement they have ever agreed with another trading bloc in terms of its depth and breadth. Now you may say, well, that's obvious because we were part of it in any way but I can tell you in the cooking up of that deal it was not obvious until the 24th of December. So, So yes, we still have pretty good access to the EU. There's a big learning curve going on at the moment as people come to terms with trading outside the customs union but we have a trade agreement with the EU. So his crockery supplies should be safe uh, and it's always worth remembering that they always sold a lot more to us than, than we sold to them. So they'll be delighted to carry on, I'm sure.
1: Uh, thank you. And then just um, one um, final uh, question from Per, who's asked, um, uh, will you allow for preference of UK suppliers and UK content in the new framework? Uh, I, if that's
2: a question specifically for the UK, I think... The, I think any UK supplier has a huge advantage of having the cultural uh, capital and understanding the way our country works and the language and, and everything else. So I, I think that British firms and, and service and firms will will have an advantage through proximity and through cultural uh, understanding. Just in that, just going beyond, if if the question was about trading into Europe. The thing that people are still getting their heads around are these things called rules of origin, which are, again, rather complicated. But actually, that provides an opportunity for UK businesses if they tweak their supply chain and bring in either UK-made or EU-made parts to that supply chain, then they can continue to trade easily into the EU without tariffs. But that may not have been the question. Uh,
1: And I'm going to give the final word to Ed, who'd like to come in. Yes, excellent.
4: Just on Per's question, I think as Lord Agnew said in his opening remarks, uh, our our new regime will be compliant with our trading obligations, so under the World Trade Organisation's Agreement on Government Procurements, uh, with the additional uh, coverage under the EU agreement and the other international uh, trade agreements, where, where we do owe equal treatment to suppliers from those trading partner countries so, so that our suppliers enjoy export opportunities in their, in, in their markets. Clearly, we'll be removing a lot of the barriers to entry that have prevented UK SMEs, uh, in particular, from accessing uh, public contracts. So, you know, if, you know, we'll be we'll be working that way as well to um, make make the make the procurement regime
1: more more business friendly. Thank you. Um, And with that, I'm going to bring the discussion to a close. Uh, Thank you very much to our three speakers uh, and particularly Lord Agnew for being with us today and for a brilliant discussion. Uh, Thanks to Gowling WLG for supporting this event. And thank you to all those who've watched today or listened back later on the IFG Live podcast. Goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.